listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belaboured episode 137. Today, we're going to talk about what the rest of the world is talking about, sexual harassment, and particularly what the labor movement can do about it and what we can do about it when it happens within the labor movement. But first, the news. The University of Chicago is now a union campus following a landmark vote to unionize the university's graduate student employees. With a landslide majority, the graduate workers will become one of just a handful of private universities where graduate students are unionized. The administration had waged a long and predictable battle with the organizers to block the National Labor Relations Board vote contending that the graduate students were not actual employees of the institution. But at the end of the day, the vote did go through. 11.034 unionizing, 479 against, with 149 ballots challenged. The effort was boosted by last year's key NLRB ruling that graduate students did have a right to unionize and collectively bargain as employees of private universities. Unionization has become a massive issue in higher education nationwide, as we've reported before. Contingent faculty, graduate students, and other campus workers have mobilized against privatization, low wages, and lack of diversity on college campuses, and they seek to organize their workforces and exercise collective bargaining rights just like any other workers in the private sector. The administration at UChicago used the same tired arguments that other university executives have used, saying that unionization would disrupt the relationship between academics and students, and etc., etc., but the National Labor Relations Board, and it should be noted this was under Obama, agreed in another ruling that graduate students are indeed workers and deserve a say in determining their wages and working conditions. And this comes at a crucial time because many say they are under-resourced and unsustainable, and this is a trend that is nationwide across higher education in both union and non-union campuses. But the decision now hangs in the balance under Trump's newly appointed National Labor Relations Board, which is sure to tack right after a series of progressive decisions under Obama. But for now, at least... The UFC graduate workers have secured the foundation of their long-awaited union. The planned collective bargaining unit will include about 2,500 teaching assistants, instructors, lecturers, and others. They come from the School of Divinity, School of Social Services Administration, Social Sciences, um, Division of Humanities, Biological Sciences, Division of Physical Sciences. They will be represented by Graduate Students United, an umbrella coalition affiliated with the Illinois Federation of Teachers and the American Association of University Professors. Since 2007, GSU has been active on campus organizing grad workers, and they've been campaigning on issues ranging from affordable childcare and healthcare to living wages for students and racial justice on campus. So I am coming to you from London, where I have been chasing around a whole bunch of stories. But at the moment, the one I am bringing you is an update on the strike, the McDonald's strike in London that we spoke to you about a few weeks ago. I got a chance to sit down with Ian Hodson from the Baker's Union, and he told me a whole lot about what's been going on with McDonald's workers over here, including a tie-in to our, well, subject of the day. How are things after the strike? Uh, very good. Uh, a lot of people have, have uh, shown a lot of interest in joining the trade union. Yeah. Um, we're, we're, we still haven't been able to engage with McDonald's because they don't want to talk to us. Right. Um, a lot of the, the issues that, that, uh, that our members raised in those shops 
Uh, they've dealt with, with a number of them. Yeah. Um, there's still a number that they haven't. Yeah. Um, they did try and um, pick on some of the some of the workers, for example, who, yeah. who took part in the strike. Uh, but the workers have managed to stand up for themselves, work together, represent each other, and obviously with the support of the uh, officials that we have from the union, uh, they're all still in jobs. Yeah. Um, nobody suffered really, apart from you know a couple of isolation points where, where they tried to keep them away from everybody else. Yeah. But that's 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 yeah. fallen flat in its face too. So yeah. so it's uh, you know these 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 people are uh, quite happy and, and quite uh, content with the way that the strikes gone. A number of them are touring all around uh, around Europe. Actually. Two of them yeah. are coming back from Sweden today. Oh, right. So they've been Sweden, Northern Ireland, you know, Ireland, um, other places across Europe, Norway. You know, they're they're they're, they're, they're little superstars at the moment. <laughs> I mean, uh, they are they are enjoying enjoying um, being able to explain their story because mm -hmm. that's that's been the key, I think. Yeah. Because what made what made the strike, um, I think, so engaging yeah. was. This is the first time, really, the British people actually got to find out what it's like to work for this for this corporation, mm -hmm. for McDonald's, because they've yep. always given this idea that it's, you know, it's an okay place to work. These are starter jobs, yep. and people aren't going to be there very long. Mm -hmm. But the reality is, is there's 119,000 people that work for McDonald's in the United Kingdom. Yep. There isn't 119,000 jobs for them to work into tomorrow. Right. They're not all 16 and 17 year old students at all. Yep. There's a there's a range of ages. Yes, there are a lot of 16 and 17 year olds and 18 and 19 year olds, but there's yeah. also 30 year olds and 40 year olds that work in these places too. Uh, they're not all students, some are mothers with children, some are fathers with children, some are single parents, some are in relationships. Yeah. So, so the whole idea that this was just a starter job was blown apart by, by these people going on strike, yeah. which is great. Yeah. And I mean, some of the issues that they were talking about and striking around are key to a whole lot of jobs now, not just McDonald's, right? Things like zero hours contracts yeah. and stuff are really huge, huge issues that we saw, you yeah. know. The zero hours, I mean, obviously they were pioneered actually by, by McDonald's. I mean, yeah. part of the reason for targeting McDonald's for us was the fact that if you're going to deal with the, you know, zero hours contracts, then you have to deal with the pioneers of them. Yeah. And so, so that's why McDonald's is, is part of the, you know, part of our aim is to, is to give them, uh, you know, an understanding that offering exploitative employment practices isn't the best way for the second largest employer in the world to behave. We think that they, that they have a duty to, 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 to be fair and reasonable. Yeah. Um, I mean, we don't want to put them out of business. We want the business to, you know, to survive because people like going to fast food restaurants. But what we want them to be yeah. is a decent employer and offer a contract of employment yeah. that reflects what should be their status yeah. as an employer. And, and the problem has been though is, is, is where they have led, others have followed. Yeah. So now in every section of our economy, you will find zero hours workers, right. you know, from yeah. teachers, in, in hospitals, you know, in you know, people's homes, you know, every section, you know, industry, everywhere, throughout the whole of the British economy now is, is absolutely over a million, over yeah. a million people on a, on a zero hours contract. And if they're not on a zero hours contract, they're on a minimum hours contract. Yeah. Which is the minimum that somebody, you know, is expected to, you know, receive benefits for. Right. You know, and, it, and it's all about making sure they maximise the profit by minimising their, their obligation to the worker.
the thing about a guaranteed hours contract it gives people a minimum hours that the employer has to find per week mm -hmm. uh, of work for them to do it means that when the boss comes in and he doesn't like the individual mm -hmm. he can't just slash their hours right. which is what happens in McDonald's to show their power right. and their strength you know if a manager wants to dominate you know the individuals in that shop he just cuts their hours of work mm -hmm. uh, and then you know which also leads to other things such as some of the issues that we're dealing with as well because that power is you know is, is for, for, for people in those shops is, is, is very telling because obviously they need to keep on the good side of the boss yeah. you know and end up do, doing all sorts of things yeah. you know and there's all sorts of cases that we're now dealing with in relation to sexual harassment for yeah. example due to the fact predominantly there are young women working in these shops mm -hmm. and the majority of men are fairly what I would call young young managers you know mm -hmm. in the late 20s early yeah. 30s who now have a power over over women right you know yeah um, and, and, and in, unfortunately in many cases they, they seem to be influencing it yeah we're dealing with far too many of those cases but again that's yeah. down to the nature of the contract as well the, mm -hmm. the ability to have the power over somebody's contract like that yeah we're used to this in the US, of course, that people, you know, that people don't have a contract, period, unless they have a union. So they, you know, this is constant in, in these workplaces. So what's next for the fast food campaign? Uh, for the fast food campaign, obviously, you know, we keep, we keep trying to engage with McDonald's. Um, their workers are, are still um, suffering um, yeah. from their, their practices. Yeah. Yeah. And there are a number of grievances being raised if McDonald's refused to, to, to meet and, and, and uh, try and resolve some of these issues, yeah. then McDonald's will be faced with further industrial action. And that was Ian Hodson of the Baker's Food and Allied Workers Union of the UK. The nation's capital might soon become the first U.S. city to fully decriminalize sex work, with one of the most comprehensive decriminalization statutes for both the purchasing and the selling of sex. Unlike Nevada, where brothels have been quasi-legalized under a regulated structure that is often, many critics say, poorly enforced, or various other measures that states have tried, in the D.C. statute, there are no specific regulatory measures set forth in the legislation that would do anything other than remove existing policies against soliciting and other forms of sex work. The bill would repeal a 1935 law that imposed criminal penalties on prostitution and also remove penalties on operating a so-called brothel um, or other place used for, uh, quote, purpose of lewdness, assignation, or prostitution. And it would decriminalize so-called pandering or basically any form of intentional solicitation of sexual services. And finally, the bill would establish a task force to study the impacts of decriminalization on the sex work industry and on sex workers themselves. Advocates are fully behind this. They hope that the bill marks the beginning of a more comprehensive human rights-oriented initiative for harm reduction that protects sex workers from violence and helps them connect with the social and economic supports they need, and also more broadly to destigmatize sex work with more research. I spoke with Yvette Butler of the Amara Legal Center, which works with victims and survivors involved in sex trafficking, about the ramifications of the proposed policy. The bill essentially decriminalizes a a few different things um so like it decriminalizes prostitution and solicitation so like the selling and buying of sexual services um pandering which is generally associated with pimping and brothel operation 
and then adds on a task force to do some research. And so essentially groups interests in the bill sort of comes from a like public health and criminal justice reform standpoint uh, where, you know, like individuals who are sex workers or survivors of trafficking or individuals who engage in survival sex, um, you know, like sex to cover their basic needs, get some money and housing um, or, you know, shelter can sometimes harmed, especially by um, the criminalization of prostitution, just because, you know, like if somebody is, if somebody is being forced to engage in commercial sex, like sometimes they'll be arrested and then the police find out they're being trafficked or, you know, somebody is doing it to take care of their basic needs, like what they're doing is still a crime. And so, you know, being arrested for something like prostitution doesn't really help to get them out of a vulnerable situation, especially from our standpoint as lawyers who, you know, one of the things that we do is, you know, record stealing and expungement. So if somebody's arrested and perhaps prosecuted and convicted for something like prostitution, you know, like a criminal record interferes with their ability to get a different kind of employment or interferes with their ability to get or keep stable housing or pursue higher education. That's where sort of Amara's interest in this comes from, is the decriminalization of uh, the selling of sex. The overall hope is that changing the criminalization scheme would then criminalize fewer of the people that we're trying to help. And that was Yvette Butler of the Amara Legal Center in D.C. The scandal surrounding Harvey Weinstein and all the other stories of sexual harassment have highlighted sexual violence as a labor issue. It's an issue that most labor activists have an intuitive sense about, and maybe they've advocated for this with their own unions. But labor standards that protect women from sexual violence at work and the role of unions in fighting for them need to be highlighted more as a collective answer to the scandal lawsuit cycle that often pervades the media these days. We spoke with Ariana Hegevish, Program Director on Employment and Earnings at the Institute for Women's Policy and Research, about sexual violence as a workplace and a labor issue. How should we view sexual harassment as a workforce issue and as a labor rights issue? Sexual harassment or protection from sexual harassment is very much a labor rights issue. You know, it's the right to fair procedures and to workplaces which are not just I tell you so because I'm the owner. Um, It's all about due process and respect. Sexual harassment or harassment generally, a lot of it is about power and uncurtailed power, which is, uh, you know, really basis of labor rights is to have um, to curtail power and to have fair procedures. You know, sexual harassment, I think legally is, you know, it's interestingly framed. It's an issue of sex discrimination and hence of preventing you from working and prospering at work and earning um, a living. So, uh, in within 
the framing of the law, it is very clear that it is an employment and a labor issue. And I think that helps. And it also, you know, it makes it clear it is not, even though it is sex or harassment on other issues, it's not about sex, it's about power and it's about your livelihood. What are some of the key barriers and and what can be done about this so that it is easier to seek recourse? Basically, um, a sexual harassment or general harassment claim is treated like other discrimination lawsuits under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which means if you have a claim, you need to make your claim to an Equal Opportunity Commission office who basically screen the facts and then kind of give you permission to sue if you feel you want to sue. But they you get permission to sue whether they agree there's a case or not. But you have to go through the EOC, um, which means, you, you know, there are EOC offices in all regions of um, the state, but you, you cannot directly go to a private lawyer to um, to to make a claim. But what the EOC does and what um, case law suggests is that typically you, you know, you have to or you should almost let your employer know that you feel you are being harassed. So you need to kind of show that you took steps almost to say this is not okay, raise it with your supervisor or raise it with an HR person. Um, and of course, in, as in other cases, you it helps if you have, you know, evidence in the sense of even if you know down yourself what has happened, that you have dates and times and ideally have um, somebody who can back you up. Uh, but the formal process is if you want to bring a lawsuit or law case is that you would have to make a claim to uh, to an Equal Opportunity Commission office. You know, a lot of organizations have procedures. So I, th- I think what happens if you look back historically, um, it's from lawsuits from the mid late 80s onwards that it was clearly if you like, officially recognized that um, sexual harassment is sexual discrimination and stops you from being able to be employed and prosper at work. Um, and um, then in 1991, the, the um, Title VII was amended and made it possible to sue and get um, much higher Uh, remedies if there was a case of harassment or sex discrimination. So a lot of it kind of shifted to internal procedures from employers on how they could prove that they kind of did their due diligence and are not, you know, did not neglect their responsibility to prevent harassment and train people in harassment. um, And it, it kind of moved into, I think, into an air, you know, what has happened is that with, so with other sex, with other discrimination issues, it's almost because, it, 
it's a major issue for human resource management departments to reduce the numbers of claims they get and to show that they have less responsibility because they train people and they try to do their best to prevent um, sexual harassment cases or other harassment cases or discrimination cases. And that, in a way, it, it hasn't been very productive. It, for HR departments, it often means that, you know, their goal is to keep below the budget they have set for potential lawsuits, not necessarily to proactively go out to prevent them. And then also there have been some bad case law in recent years, which kind of limits, you know, the, the harassment that officially um, holds employer libels to supervisors and supervisors with kind of fairly extensive employment um, powers over somebody. So there is some bad case law, but, um, you know, basically the way the case law has developed is companies have to show that they did their best to prevent harassment and that kind of can lower their liability. That seems to create, you know, an added step. What happens then to a, a person with a claim who may not feel comfortable with that? I mean, is there anything that can be done to ease that burden? I think the problem is not so much that it's so hard to sue somebody. The problem is that, you know, if you put forward a case, it's because it's a power relationship. As yeah, I mean, the, the case of Harvey um, Weinstein put it into the sharpest contrast. You know, the, he was he was the gatekeeper to power and influence and um, work and, you know, career development. And therefore, people were scared, um, justifiably so, to raise the issues. But with him, you could see even when they did raise it, he had the power to buy himself out of um, any real kind of curtailing of his bad behavior or his criminal behavior. But I think often the issue is that, you know, bringing a lawsuit is hard because you basically have to stick your neck out and you do not always get support from um, your employer or the HR people. There was just a, a survey out of, it was a brief survey of um, women and men working in the finance sector, so at kind of senior professional levels, just saying, you know, giving their reasons often why they did not bring claims um, because they said you basically get labeled you know, A, it labels you as, oh, there, she's not a professional woman, there she goes, you know, sexual harassment, she can't cope working in this field, or they feel that you then get sidetracked or, you know, um, get bad marks against you, other people don't want to hire you, um, you may not feel to bring a case, you know, may risk that you lose your job, so people, it, a lot of it is around your power or security in your employment and your position. And given that fundamentally this is about imbalance of power, I think um, that explains as much why people may not feel comfortable in bringing um, claims as um, the, the, the way, you know, the formal legal system for doing it.
You studied a lot of these cases. Were there things that people did that produced better outcomes? And does the EEOC still play a very helpful role as an advocate of sorts? Yes. I'd, so firstly, the EEOC, I think, is very helpful. They had last year a task force um, on harassment, all forms of harassment. Um, partly they wanted to draw attention to the fact that sexual harassment is a big part, but also um, there's harassment around race, around national origin, particularly in, in the recent political environment, around age, disability, and sexuality. So um, they felt that, you know, we, we really needed to put attention to it, partly um, because it holds back people's individual ability to thrive, but also it has large economic costs. And what they did, um, I think, which was very helpful, is in as far as the, the role of the EOC is to provide guidance. They they can bring in a year, they can bring something like 300 to 400 lawsuits and you know, they are all together about 100,000 claims to the EOC and harassment claims are about a third of those. So really what they want to do is prevention and to make it um, more possible for other organizations to just reduce the incidence of harassment. And what they have did, what they did was two issues. One is they identified some of the key risk factor, or we did as part of, as part of the task force, um, which included, you know, rainmakers or people who really have high levels of power, like in Hollywood at the moment, um, but also people who are the one person, you know, the one woman working on a construction crew or the uh, um, particularly the one black woman working there or people working in isolated positions like, you know, women um, cleaners work doing office work at night who may also be exposed because of their immigration status and so on. Or the other one, which was interesting, was people doing menial boring work um, where there also are high levels of harassment. And then it's really about making work more interesting and, and engaging people more, which can reduce it. Um, so and and but they also what organizations have done is they train people and there's good training and there's bad training. And a lot of training focuses on, I tell you what's illegal and I tell you not to do it. And that doesn't seem to work very well. I mean, there are good ways of doing it and being more interactive. Um, but a lot of it is just very formulaic and tick the box and, you know, you do it on um, online or whatever. And so the new ideas are really to focus much more on helping people to intervene when they see something that they know isn't right, but also to broaden it out. So to take a civility approach, almost to say, you know, nobody wants to be um, the butt of jokes or nobody wants to be isolated and then focus on these positive interventions, bystander interventions. So it's not so much just, you know, us against them, but makes it a more kind of collective process. 
does the EEOC ever turn down cases that are challenged later? And, and can you still sue on your own if you are not able to push a case through the EEOC? Oh, absolutely. So what happens is so the EEOC basically takes a very small number of cases directly where they are the lawyer and, you know, litigate on behalf of the person who brings the case. In the other ones, what they give you, you need to go to the, you kind of need to register your case. And then they give you a letter. And with that letter, whether the EOC thinks that it makes sense or not, they don't really prejudge you. You can then go either to the courts and bring a case yourself, or you can go to a lawyer, a private lawyer, and um, ask you to represent you. Is it more effective when you have the EEOC backing you? Yes. Uh, oh, oh, I mean, it is more effective when, when the EEOC brings the case. But as I say, they, they only bring 350 cases or so um, a year. They can only really pick the most exemplary ones. They've done a really great job in, for example, in um, California to focus on um, farm workers and, and migrant workers um, and pick up that kind of in, inequity that is going on there. And they, you know, they sometimes have an industry focus and they pick up the worst cases or exemplary cases and then spread the word, hoping that it will impact other employers. But, um, you know, most most people take cases with a lawyer. It definitely helps if you have legal supports. And some people go through law centers or, you know, um, get representation elsewhere. It's just that you have to go through the formal step of making a claim to the EOC. That doesn't mean that they will represent you or that they will stop you from bringing a case um, with a private lawyer. It sounds like unless you really have legal resources, if you are a low-wage worker, you are you know inherently really disadvantaged in this whole process, especially when you're going up against you know large multinational employer or big fast food company or, or whatever. What are some of the broader remedies that you could seek? Um, for example, how often is it that a class action suit is prosecuted or any kind of more collective actions that can be undertaken? Class action lawsuits clearly are the most impactful because you typically can also get better remedies, um, you know, and there are cases where they're very systematic um, abuse where there's really widespread um, harassment going on and you can bring enough people together to make that case. Um, and, you know, I, those are useful because you can really push for a systemic change. Um, but also, of course, the level of evidence required is higher. I mean, all, all the cases that the EOC brings themselves kind of are pseudo class action lawsuits. They always bring it in a way on behalf of a class, but it's not the same legally as a private class action lawsuit. Um, however, you know, in a lot of situations, it may just be you or it may be, you know, you one supervisor 
um, being a serial harasser or so, you know, it's not always very easy to get class action status and it takes a long while. I mean, obviously, also for workers, unions are um, in principle somebody who on or, or bodies who may support you in those organizations uh, in those situations and certainly there are organizations who work with unions or work on labor rights um, and also law centers and so on who have supported um, workers who face serious harassment you know, so it doesn't just always have to be a private lawsuit, but, you know, there are several organizations who um, work with low-wage workers in the type of industries where harassment, well, harassment can happen anywhere, but, you know, um, but where people are exposed to it and don't have other resources. What happens when there is just a you know, an atmosphere in which co-workers are harassing someone. And in those cases, what is the role of, of a group like a labor union that can step in as an advocate for workers and hold the employer accountable, even if it falls short of an actionable legal claim to ensure a safe working environment? Yeah, absolutely. So if an organization allows such harassment to go on and to create a hostile work environment, I think unions and individual employees can do quite a bit to try and stop this. Where there are kind of official claims against either colleagues or supervisors of harassment, historically, the unions have, you know, in unionized workplaces, often it has been a not very helpful dynamic because as a union member, you have the right to be defended by the union, right? So that's that's one of the fundamental rights if you're a member of the union. So then what has happened sometimes is that the union has actually defended the person who was accused against the person who was harassed because the person, you know, who basically because of the claim of harassment, the employer was now considering disciplining the um, harasser. And so sometimes that gets very complicated and um, not necessarily very helpful. you know, with due process and whatever. Yes, but I think, as I said earlier, I think the with the current discussion of harassment, there are two, I think, really positive um, trends. One is with Fox News and with Hollywood and with all these really bad but very visible cases, uh, it puts it on the agenda, and I think it gives much more, gives many more women the the kind of confidence to be open about it and to raise those issues and to be more assertive in the workplace and to say, yes, this has happened to me and needs to stop. And I do think there's some sensitivity from employers that they cannot afford to um, really piss off all these women. So I think it it was like the Anita Hill case originally, you know, it it just, even though it shows how bad it is, it also gives more people the confidence to 
do something about it. The second issue, which I think is a little newer, uh, is this emphasis on positive interventions. And for example, um, the iron workers union, and you know, you can imagine um, the building trades are really often not very good working environments for women. You know, there's not all, not all workplaces include harassment, but a lot of women working in the trades have bad experiences of harassment. Uh, and the iron workers are really trying to address this. And one thing they've developed is a campaign call, um, which they call Be the One Guy. So it's kind of like be the, the one guy who somebody can go to if they feel harassed or who takes somebody in part and just says, look, this is not on. Don't do that. I don't think this is kind of this is a good action who or who, who basically is an ally and who lets the the woman or whoever is being harassed know that they are on his or her side and tries to defuse the situation. Uh, and I think that is a that's a really great initiative because it acknowledges, you know, it just says, no, not all men are harassers. And a lot of us, of us guys, really do not like this kind of behavior either, right? We want a workplace where people treat each other with respect. And, um, you know, we, we feel just as maybe not justice, but we also feel bullied um, and don't like a work environment where harassment happens. And sometimes, you know, what what the, the new initiatives do, and there also is um, some a pro program called Green Dot, which um, started, you know, they did a lot of work in the military and they are now some people in, in um, Oregon trades, um, Oregon women in the trades who are trying to develop a kind of pilot in, in construction um, industries and manufacturing, which kind of helps people to find sometimes almost to role play what you do when something like that happens, to think through how you may diffuse a situation or how to kind of gently put it out of the way in a way that you feel you can still be comfortable, um, but still allows you to intervene in some ways. And I think those are really promising ways forward. What would happen if, for instance, a union member harassed another union member? You know, of course, we have the high-profile Scott Courtney case, but just on a workplace level, um, you know, and there was that tricky position that the union is in where they end up being sort of advocates for both employees. What do you do in that case? So the first thing is unions are like any other organizations, they have good and bad people and sometimes things go wrong. So really, unions should also have a process which makes it clear where, if you are harassed, where there is somebody you can trust in, who you can report the situation to, and then the union as an employer or the employer of a unionized workforce 
um, should investigate the situation and make sure that the person who is being harassed is safe and that they it's not often what happens you know you, you are being harassed you make a complaint and then to protect you they move you into a different area of work rather than moving the person who's being accused of harassment so i think we have a lot of procedures uh, around what should be done if there's a claim of harassment and i think what's important is to react promptly and accountably um you know and but also you need to do due diligence so both people need to be heard i think you cannot make the presumption that anybody who is accused is automatically guilty right so the employer or the union has to investigate and figure out what really happened um mm. but i think it's important you know unions in that sense, they are organizations with power and, you know, interests and um, hopefully they are more transparent and, you know, have good procedures themselves. But doesn't mean just because you are a union and generally out for the good of the workers that something untowards would not happen. Not like the labor movement has any history of uh, sexism or gender discrimination or anything, but uh, the idea that labor unions do play a crucial role in enforcing protections and they have a collective bargaining process in which certain protections can be put in place as part of a contracted agreement. How can perhaps labor contracts be structured um, so that there is better accountability over issues like sexual harassment and sexual assault. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. Typically, the way this unions help at the moment is um, by making sure that you can bring a somebody with you, right? A, a, a shop steward or a representative or even a friend. So if you want to make a claim or you feel you need to go to your supervisor or to you to an HR person or whatever, that you can have somebody with you so that you're not on your own. And I think that often those type of procedures um, make a difference. But I do think, it, I mean, it's a good point. Typically, as far as I'm aware, you know, the, the those type of harassment and complaints procedures are not something where unions tend to negotiate a lot. They may, they may be focused, and which is one of the problems that I raised earlier, they may be focused on this issue of, okay, you can't just fire somebody, there has to be due diligence, they has to be protected, so, and therefore they kind of defend the person who's being disciplined, um, but leave the policy, often the HR, the, the harassment policy to the human resource management department um, as a kind of division of labor. And um, I think it's a good question whether they can do more to ensure that um, harassment is kept to a minimum or does not happen. You know, they don't really need to bargain over it because the law makes it very clear that this is not something that is legal or legitimate or should happen, right? So they don't have to, it's like saying, okay, I need to get paid when I work. It's, oh, sure. Know. But I mean, um, 
ensuring women are not put in a very vulnerable position or to ensure that perhaps trainings take place? I mean, are those things that unions can focus on? You know, one one thing unions could perhaps do is often training is almost part of the legal framework. So lots of organizations um, make sure that people are being trained, um, if only to, you know, to show that they've trained them and lower their liability. But there are vast differences in training, and often that's a that's an issue of cost, right? So it it's cheaper if you make everybody watch a, a video um, in their own time for. 45 minutes and then tick boxes than if you bring people together and bring in a live kind of trainer. And we know that um, with live trainers, the, the results are much better typically. So that something like that could be included in the in negotiating packages. Sure. In the Harvey Weinstein case, this issue of non-disclosure agreements and things that effectively silence workers. In the case that you have a union, a shop steward or something pushing for you, could you prevent an employer from forcing things like arbitration or an NDA on a worker? I think those type of policies or, you know, those procedures are more common in non-union workplaces. But the non-disclosure, basically you as the person bringing the case have to agree to the non-disclosure um, procedure. You might may feel powerless to say no to it, but typically it's like, you know, I give you X amount of money and you either sign non-disclosure or you don't get the money, right? So in that case, it's always... I mean, the individual has to agree and the union probably cannot negotiate on top of those unless you, you know, are around that. But in general, the non, I think the, 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 the pressure for non-disclosure and pressure to binding arbitration, which often comes with secrecy agreements, is really harmful. And I think that is one issue also where the EOC is really exemplary. I mean, as I said, they only bring like 350 or so important cases a year, but on all of their cases, they, they publish everything. So, you know, there's, they, they never enter non-disclosure agreements, which I think is very important. So this, it, it's a really, I think it's a really harmful trend. So it seems like what the union can do is just at least create an atmosphere in which the worker feels empowered. And and perhaps, you know, that's not maybe a direct additional formal line of of legal protection, but it certainly is a way for workers to, A, feel more comfortable uh, coming forward with a problem and also having support and legal help when trying to enforce their rights. Yeah, but for, first and foremost, they can help um, to create help create a, a working environment where there is no harassment or where there is less harassment. They can make it absolutely clear to their members that that is not acceptable, you know. And I I think they I would see their role as much 
in that respect as I would in making it easier to take cases, because really the goal is that people don't have to take cases. The Trump administration is obviously in control of the EEOC now. Do you see any issues that should be looked out for under this particular administration? Specifically, I'm thinking of the executive order that he just rescinded um, that would have restricted federal contractors who have been known to have things like sexual harassment grievances or other workplace violations uh, against them. So, um, yes, I, I do think it was, you know, it, it did, does not help job quality that they rescinded um, that executive order and the other executive order that was rescinded by the OMB is the the EOC data collection on equal pay um, by gender, race, and ethnicity in in a form that had been used for many years. um, And after a process of extensive consultation, so that because you know with if they have that data, and hopefully they will still. Um, get that data, you can also, you know, you, it, harassment also means often that people are kept out of better jobs. And um, that data can also show that. And accountability, we know that accountability and transparency really are the biggest um, tools for ensuring that there isn't abuse of power. We have the EOC that we have. Is that perhaps in danger of being weakened somehow? Well, you know, the EOC is uh, a kind of, I mean, they're quasi-autonomous. And in past administrations, you know, they've always continued to do work. They still have cases. They investigate those cases. So um, two, two new chairs or two new commissioners have recently been appointed and we should see how they work out. But the EOC always, in my, I mean, they are always underfunded and they could always do more. So I feel they, they typically do heroic work um, in good times and bad. However, I think what's happening a little bit is that there's more shift to states and state level enforcement and i think that will develop more um to to kind of complement what's going on at the federal level in terms of enforcement so states you know states have human rights departments or have their own equal opportunity um arms or commissions and they can also do some um enforcement of employment standards and um, can help with harassment cases and so on. So my, you know, I would imagine that that may develop a little bit more. Do you feel like there are some policies perhaps that can be enacted on the federal or on the state or local level that can provide additional protections? I mean, obviously, the laws that exist should be enforced. (laughs) Um, But, you know, is there anything additionally that that can enhance civil rights at work? There are two issues which aren't policies. But I think one is to keep us on our toes that this is an issue. And Australia is a great example. They have, I think, every five years, they do a general survey, like a current population survey or so, 
where they assess the level of harassment in the population. And, you know, it's a set of questions, no single um, harassment survey is perfect, but it it's stable over time and so you can see what happens and you can see that it is still an issue uh, and keep it on the minds both of employers and CEOs and also in Australia they've done quite a lot to try and engage CEOs in tackling this issue taking this seriously so I think that that's a good way forward and the other one is I mean they're also Things like thinking through how to how can you make it easier to get out of to complain, get help, get out of a bad situation. And some large companies, for example, have set up on anonymous um, call lines where you can get advice and and make a claim, which sometimes work. The the problem with all all these policies and procedures is they work if you want them to work. Um, they don't work if you're cynical and you, you know you want to ignore them or use them against the the person. So they are very good example. They are good examples of organizations that have turned round that had big cases against them and really focused on creating a good workplace and getting rid of harassment. But then there are also examples of organizations who set up, you know, complaint, li complaint lines, which were anonymous and whatever. And when you called, <laughs> they straight went to the HR person and the HR person knew who you were and, you know, was held against you. I mean, obviously, totally against the intent of such a procedure, but nevertheless not unknown. So it's almost like a cultural shift. So they need, to, there is the awareness that this is still a big issue. And I think every time something like Harvey um, Weinstein happens, you know, there's greater outrage from women or from people who are being harassed and some things will, because harassment isn't bad in all workplaces. In fact, a lot of workplaces are have integrated male, female, diverse workforces and harassment isn't a major issue, right? But then you have these other ones where really because of insecurity, of employment status or power relations or whatever, harassment is really bad and that's where we need to focus. And that was Ariana Hagevich of the Institute for Women's Policy and Research. We'll have links to their work on sexual assault and sexual violence at the workplace in our podcast page. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for everybody's favorite segment, ARG. I wish I'd written that. In keeping with our theme of this week, I chose a piece with a title that might sound familiar to some of our, uh, our longtime listeners. It's called Lean Out, Feminist Struggles or Labor Struggles by Dana Tortorici at Harper's. And 
Dana takes a book by, well, Ivanka Trump that we've discussed a little bit with Ellen Bravo on this podcast, and also a friend of the show, Jane McAlevey's book, No Shortcuts, as examples for what, well, what feminists should and should not do in the age of Trump. The answer is not focus on the women at the top, and it is organize, and perhaps even organize in your workplace. It is not, of course, a surprise to anybody listening to this podcast that women workers have been leading the quote-unquote resistance to Trump since the beginning, whether we're talking about the fast food and other workers of the Five for 15, who managed to stop Andy Puzder from becoming the uh, labor secretary under Trump, since Andy Puzder's restaurants had a long history of, wait for it, sexual harassment, among other things. And um, or we could talk about the nurses who led the fights this summer to stop Trump's health care bills, multiple health care bills, and have also been leading the fight for single payer. We're talking about teachers and educators and parents who have been fighting Betsy DeVos's attacks on public schools. We are talking about the Women's March and, of course, last March's Women's Strike. And we are going to, I'm sure, continue talking about the various ways that women's work has been central to resisting austerity politics more broadly, aside from just the realm of Trump. So Dana's piece is, as I said, at Harper's. Um, It is, well, Harper's has a lot of paywall, so if you cannot read it, I will read a little bit of it to you here because it's really worth checking out. Um, She focuses a lot on, of course, the work of the Chicago Teachers Union, who have been really still the sort of taking off point for thinking about what a fighting labor union looks like right now, although they have seeded several examples in the past few years. But at the end, Dana writes, quote, looking ahead, McAlevey writes, education and healthcare are the strategic sectors of the service economy, which means nurses and teachers will play a critical role in labor's future. Hospitals and schools cannot be shipped offshore, and unlike manufacturing workers, healthcare and education workers have direct, intimate relationships with the people they serve. This raises the bar for when to call strikes, but it gives those workers a strategic advantage as the CTU strike shows. Education and healthcare workers also have the experience and insight that the Trump administration so dangerously lacks. Teachers are fighting what Lily Eskelson Garcia, the president of the National Education Association, calls DeVos's brand new shiny private school voucher program for schools that are allowed to discriminate and overpromise and underdeliver. Nurse-led canvassing helped kill the disastrous GOP healthcare bills. Some nurses' unions, such as the New York State Nurses Association and the California Nurses Association, are leading the push for single-payer healthcare in their states. Today, few political organizations on the left, unions included, practice the sort of organizing McAlevey believes builds the mass involvement necessary to beat global corporate leviathans. Instead, mobilizing has become the norm, with authentic messengers from the grassroots leading a public-faced efforts run by a handful of paid staff. The Democrats' electoral failures have shown that money and top-down messaging are not enough to win. The right will always outspend and outspin the left. I would add to this, since we've been talking about sexual harassment within and without the labor movement today, that when you give women within unions or within their workplace power to fight back and power to control their own union, to really be the fighting union rather than be sort of serviced by the union, that's when they have the power to stop all sorts of bad things that are happening to them in the workplace. One of the refreshing but disturbing upshots of the debate over the Weinstein affair was a parallel discussion about how women should respond in both public and private to defend their rights at work. 
but in a labor movement defined by public direct collective action, militating for women's rights over an intensely personal, intimate issue like sexual assault can be a tricky space to navigate. Alex Press discusses this in a piece on weaponizing the Whisper Network. It was republished in Vox. Press asks the critical question that captures the tension between going public and holding so-called safe space for women. Quote, as women have written in the past, these whisper networks are a lifeline. And as a 25-year-old woman, new to both working in media and living in New York, I mean that literally. They have kept me safe. But concern keeps gnawing at my conscience, and I don't have an answer. What about women who don't get this information? They are the women who are most likely targets of abuse. Not socially well-networked with other women, young, new to these industries, naive, alone. We know some of these women will become victims. It's not a question of if, but when, unquote. So how do we reach them when they're beyond the whispering range? Press discusses then the challenge of empowering people as a public movement while also ensuring that victims are outed when they want to be, are in control, are not exploited, exposed, or tokenized in the media fallout that might occur afterwards, or at risk of retaliation. So you can't rely on HR offices alone, those are controlled by bosses, but you should also question the hierarchy of self-appointed and self-selected spokespeople for movements Uh, that are run by celebrities about sexual assault. And we should applaud the many co-workers of Weinstein who have finally come out to um, belatedly blow the whistle. But it begs the question, why did it take so long and why did so many hesitate to break their silence? Press writes, quote, Call me a cynic, but most men will not act upon knowledge about sexual harassment until we have weaponized these networks. Nor do I trust HR departments, loyal to the company above all else, to adequately investigate allegations against the manual power in that company. We need entities with teeth that can bring real consequences to bear on men who we know are abusive, unquote. And we need to understand that we can praise public naming and shaming, but also that patterns of calling out the powerful when they're monopolized by the powerful are also not independent of structures of power in our society that as a labor movement we all have to militate against because they continue to be unjust in many ways towards the victims who are suffering the most. That is, the poor, the disenfranchised, those marginalized not just because of gender and sexuality, but also because of race and class. Press underscores the power and the limitations of unions and the labor movement, however. Unions can definitely set work rules that can strengthen protections for women at work, that can safeguard their rights more generally, and basically ensure standards are followed for fair treatment across the workforce, across racial, gender, and class lines. Even more importantly, as an advocate, she adds, when a victim comes forward with an accusation through a union, she has the legal expertise of the union on her side, as well as the institutionalized collective power of her co-workers. So that kind of institutional support is key. But although unions might end up stonewalling harassment claims and otherwise failing to act as strong member advocates, and we should all acknowledge that, Press also argues that pressure for reform from the inside must be done and can yield results. And rather than give up on unions, we should strengthen them. Again, it comes down to collective action. Once a critical mass in the so-called whisper network is reached, that creates momentum not just for celebrities to come out, that's the least that can be done really, but to encourage everyone to understand how important solidarity is on an everyday level. Instead of making more safe spaces in our private lives, we should be bringing private problems more forcefully and more proactively into the public sphere by making all spaces more safe for women. That includes our workspace. 
spaces. And an interesting side note to this piece is that it happens to have grown out of a conversation on the grapevine of women writers between Alex Press and another colleague, friend of the podcast, I should say, which I guess goes to show you that there are ways that even anonymous conversations can have real results in the very public world we all live in, even the media. So here's to you, all of us, named and unnamed, who are speaking out in countless ways every day. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.